Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm wondering if you ever caught a glimpse of nature that made you stop in your tracks and say, wow. I'm wondering if you've ever felt that through the natural world, the transcendent was reaching out to you and giving you a vision of what is to come some element of heaven bursting through the earth. I have felt that way several times. I remember vividly as I was hiking alone in the mountains of Ireland, having that wow experience. I remember walking on the cliff sides of Newfoundland and having that experience. I even remember walking down my country lane. We grew up on a very small street in the middle of Middle Lancaster where the lanes were so narrow that the trees actually formed a canopy over the road and so you could walk on a sunny day without getting a sunburnt scalp, which for me after age 18 was always an issue. But I, I can walk those streets now and still tear up. Uh, because there's something about the natural beauty and landscape that gets to me and is connected to what could be considered a religious experience. And I'm wondering if you've had that experience, that wow experience, whether it was in a Zen garden or Salisbury or the Arizona desert. Um, The Celtic pagans used to call these experiences or these places thin places, Thin places. That is, they believed that there were parts of the natural world in which the membrane that separated heaven and earth was translucent. And you could have an encounter with the heavenly through the earthly. I'd like to speak this morning within this Christ and Culture series on our care for the created world. And I want to focus on our reading from Genesis chapter 2. I believe that Genesis chapter 2 helps to reframe our imaginations and helps us in particular to see three things, the architect, the garden temple, and the gardeners. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, I will assist all of us, myself included, to fall in love with creation, not only to have a theology of creation, or a framework through which to view or understand creation, but to love it as God loves it. And that we would perceive creation as magical rather than sterile, or to be more of Tolkien than of Dawkins. So I want to begin by speaking about the architect. This is the protagonist of Genesis 1 and 2, the architect. Genesis 2 is a retelling and a reordering of the creation story that was present in Genesis 1. But both of them, the story from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are in agreement that the natural world, the created order, is not some shattered vase 
that has been knocked down via an accident so that all of our planets and solar systems and personalities are uh, some mistake of history, but instead understands the creation to have an originator and understands creation to have purpose and even artistry, that there is supra-neurology behind what we experience. What I'm fascinated by, at least within this particular passage, by, and in contrast to Genesis 1, is the architectural name of God. Now stick with me, I know it sounds obscure. But the architectural name of God. In chapter 1 and throughout chapter 1, God is known by one name. The Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim. Now, Elohim is a generic word used uh, throughout the Middle East, principally in Holy Scripture, but other cultures use it too, and it's just a generic term for deity. In the Old Testament itself, it can use Elohim, just God, to describe other gods, Marduk, Tiamat. That word isn't particularly and uniquely connected to the God of Israel. It's a generic term for God. But in the Old Testament, the divine name Elohim tends to be, not always, but tends to be connected to God as creator, God as architect. This even can be seen in Psalm 8, uh, which offers a deliberate mistranslation that I've never understood, in which human beings are said to be made a little lower than the, do you remember it? Than the angels. It's a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God. Made constructed. It's a creationally oriented word. And that is used throughout chapter 1. But all of a sudden, in chapter 2, in this reframing and reordering of the creation account, we have a new name for God. A new name is uh, inscribed in the text. Uh, and our English translation uh, offers us this, uh, this translation, the Lord God. The Lord God. And it is mentioned six times in our passage. Verse 2, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden. The Lord God made to spring up a tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Uh, the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Now, Yahweh is what uh, theologians call the Tetragrammaton. It is a name that is considered deeply sacred within the, uh, the Israelite expression of religion. And we see in this text a combination, then, of Elohim and Yahweh. Elohim gets a qualifier. It gets, if you will, a first name, an add-on that is deeply significant. Because when was the first time, not that the word Yahweh was inscribed in the scripture, but when was the first time it was publicly revealed to a character in the Old Testament? It was revealed to Moses. Because Moses was hungering and thirsting for a righteous emancipation of his people. In fact, tried to take that emancipation early on in his career into his own hands as a vigilante before he got caught and had to flee away to Midian. But he was crying out in his heart for some sort of deliverance. And then God in this theophonic appearing comes to him in the burning bush 
and gives him, oddly enough, not just a task, but gives him the divine name, a revelation of this divine name. I am that I am, translated Yahweh. And Yahweh, that name in scripture, becomes synonymous not so much with creation, but with deliverance. Yahweh is a covenant-making God that seeks to make legal agreements with people, enter into those agreements, and keep his end of the promise, keep his end of the bargain. And so whenever God reveals to Moses his plan for deliverance, he also couples that plan with a divine name that becomes synonymous with emancipation. Yahweh is the God of Israel, the God who delivers his particular family. Now, that sacred name, being synonymous with rescue, is added, injected, into the creation account, the Elohim creation account. So why on earth is that the case? Why is it now that Yahweh, Elohim, instead of just Elohim? I believe that it's a hint. It's a hint that in the very imminent future, Eden's paradise will be shut down like a county fair after its season is over, and it will decay away to nothingness. And everything that was just labeled very good will turn very bad. And on that day, that day of ruin, Elohim the architect will also be Yahweh the deliverer, the Lord God. This is a God who is furiously active when things are, to quote Genesis, very good and furiously active, maybe more furiously active when things are very bad. His arm is not too short to create, and his arm is not too short to reach into the gutter and pick up the decaying creation out of its state of decay. That this is the Lord God right from the start, that Elohim the creator is the same God as Yahweh the deliverer. Something about the architect and his name. Now something about the garden temple. What is the nature of Eden's garden? I think Christian iconography does us a huge disservice here. Uh, I was online looking at various paintings of the uh, Garden of Eden. One of my least favorites is from uh, Cranach, who does, or Cranach, if you're snobby, Cranach, uh, who, who does glorious uh, work. But he, uh, unfortunately, makes Eden look like a Valium ceremony, where all of the animals and creatures look like they're sleepy, non-threatening, benign vegetarians. They're all just sort of hanging out, uh, totally chill, where it looks like an, if an elephant stepped on a beetle, the beetle would not only be fine, but thank the elephant for the privilege. <laughs> I don't think that helps us very much. It makes it seem like the, the Edenic scene is not real, or is something from the the Elysian fields. Um, that isn't really the case. The, the garden has natural qualities. In fact, just like any other garden that we would have. For example, if you have a garden here in western Pennsylvania, a garden that survives the blight, if you have a garden, it has to have boundaries. The garden, not of Eden, but in Eden, because the garden was only a portion of Eden, uh, has boundaries. Remember, the whole created world is not depicted as a tranquil garden at all. In fact, this text lists places, specific places, that are not Eden. Did you notice that? Uh, Havilah and Cush, those are neighboring city-states. Uh, this garden also has natural life cycles. 
uh, of life and death regarding the consumption of plants. God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and they will be yours for food. text doesn't mention anything about the consumption of animals, but it doesn't forbid it either. And the garden also has not only boundaries, life cycles, it has predators. We know that there's a serpent, a satanic serpent, that lives within the hallowed boundaries of the garden. And by the way, that should have been the first animal death, for what it's worth. Adam should have done his job to serve and protect the garden and crushed the gaping mouth of the serpent with his foot. But that would take another pierced foot on another sunny day. And so the garden has some natural qualities. Uh, Meredith Klein, the uh, Old Testament scholar and Orthodox Presbyterian Church minister, writes this. The Bible does not require us to think of man's environment before the fall as radically different than is presently the case. The garden itself, prepared as man's immediate dwelling, was a place eminently expressive of divine goodness and favor. Nevertheless, the elements that could be turned against man were already in nature. Man's state of blessedness is primarily a matter of God's authority over creation, directing every circumstance so that everything works together for man's good and nothing frustrates his endeavors. The Psalms say that the angel guards us lest we cast our foot against a stone. God's created blessing consists not in the absence of a, of a potentially harmful stone, but in the presence of God's providential care of the foot. And so we have in these early days of creation uh, a, a, a garden within a, larger creation, within a larger order that is not a Kincaid painting with all of its beautiful light, sunsets, and Irish hamlets, evidently. But it does portray the garden as a supernatural canopy, a divine protectorate, or what I will now argue, a temple. It's a temple. The garden has supernatural qualities, that it finds its architectural design and placement by God himself. The garden uh, didn't come to be uh, through human ingenuity. It was created by God. Also, the garden works with us rather than against us. Nature starts working against us at the fall. And the garden has two trees with mystical properties. One creates immortality. The other creates a... Uh, nearly divine awareness of categories regarding good, e good and evil, seeing as God sees. And this garden becomes a meeting ground between human beings and God who meet together in a cordial, tranquil relationship. It becomes, if you will, a thin place, a place where the membrane between heaven and earth is either uh, opaque or non-existent. And it becomes, for them, a temple and I want to argue it's a temple for two reasons. One is I want you to notice the direct artistic link between Eden and the much later constructed Jewish temple. You may remember that King David uh, wanted to build a house for God. God said no. David said yes. God said no again. Uh, and then Solomon, his son, was the one who decided to take up the project. So Solomon orders the construction of the temple. And notice the iconography of the Jewish temple. Notice the iconography. This is in 1 Kings chapter 6. Solomon put the cherubim in the innermost part of the temple. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that their other wings touched those on the other side of the house. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. 
the temple is like Eden writ in stone. Because we have in the temple the artistic depiction of a lush garden guarded by cherubim. And you may remember when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, God places a cherubim to, uh, to, to prevent their return. And we have that same message being offered in the temple. The temple was the meeting ground of God and his people. And we have in the temple the iconography of guardianship. In other words, there's a message in the temple that says you're not really welcome here. The cherubim are still around. The only way you can have access to the central ring, the place in which you encounter God, is through blood. And so the temple is like Eden written in stone, a meeting ground that is defined by the same elements as Eden. And then if you think about this temple imagery a little bit more, you discover that Adam, in verse 15, Adam is tasked to work and, some translations say guard, work and guard the garden. And why that's interesting is that the only other uh, three times those words, those verbs appear together in the Old Testament, they, that only happens three times, in each of those passages, work and guard or work and serve, is only used to those priests who are working in the temple itself. So Adam is charged with the same charge that is given later on to workmen in the temple. So I want to say that Eden is a botanical temple, a thin place, a sacramental union of the natural and the supernatural. It's a holy and undefiled blending together of heaven and earth. So the architect his garden temple, and now the gardeners. In Genesis 2, there's a lot of dirt language. Have you noticed that? It's repeated time and time again. It's not my focus for this sermon, but just note how earthy, how earthy Genesis is. That human beings were made from the soil, but then for the soil. We were made, created, formed, for the good of the world. This is what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The unfallen creation was neither rough nor sleek, neither an arid desert, nor a ready-made condo with a stocked minibar. Uh, it was instead a garden, and a garden that required labor, labor to increase its beauty. The Genesis account does not portray the original creation as quote-unquote perfect or at its highest apex of good. Instead, you have a world that can be cultivated and explored and improved upon. The garden involves labor, and that should suggest to us that labor in and of itself is good rather than bad. It is not an effect of the fall. This comes before both the fall and the curse. And I want to notice that the temple gardeners require activity in both the left side and the right side of the brain. Beneficiaries of, of uh, cerebral equilibrium. I made that up on the spot. Wasn't that impressive? Uh, left side, right side. That is to say that we labor, we labor toward that which is useful and beautiful. Useful. Notice these garden plants, it says in the passage, were good for food. And food was necessary for survival in Eden as it is, as it is anywhere else. They're laboring for something that has profitability. Just notice the, the obvious necessity of vocation and work that is connected to utility, usefulness. Uh, scripture exalts left-brain vocations. So 
half of the people in this room have left brain vocations. Left brain vocations, where you are bankers, or engineers, or builders, or you work in science, or plumbing, or you drive a truck that brings food to the stores. Uh, that, all of that is necessary to make human life possible. Without these vocations, creationally oriented vocations, which enhance uh, the benefits of God's good world, we don't survive. And so thank God for those who have a left brain orientation. But also, let's thank God for those who have a right brain orientation, because these temple gardeners are also to have an eye for beauty. This is in verse 9. I want you to read it with me. It's fascinating. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice what comes first, the beauty. By the way, whenever the fall begins to occur, it swaps. Adam and Eve see that the tree, particularly the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was good for food and pleasing to the eye. There's a change that occurs there. I'm not sure how much hay to make out of that, but it's just noteworthy. But it's pleasant to the sight that we cultivate the garden for the sake of beauty. Uh, th this idea of working toward beauty is expanded when the Genesis account, seemingly for no good reason, except divine inspiration, you know, talks about the other natural resources that are found outside Eden. It mentions that in uh, Havilah there's gold, and not just gold, but gold that is good. In other words, gold that is discernibly good from gold that is not as good. And there's uh, bdellium, which is a resin that is melted down to make perfume. And then there's onyx. The interesting thing about these elements is they're not useful. They're not useful. They just make life beautiful. Not just that, they have to be cultivated in order for that beauty to be expressed. They have to be melted down, and in some of the cases, hammered and crafted into something before they become truly beautiful. And so the right brain, the right brain, is just as necessary as engineering and construction. Now, I, mean, I meet some left brain types that really believe that mathematics is somehow spiritually superior to poetry. You're wrong. That's nonsense, unbiblical, borderline Gnosticism. Anyway, going off on a tangent. <laughs> Ridiculous, really, and dehumanizing, I might add. And there are right-brainers that, uh, that think that, uh, uh, that left-brainers would have us living in uh, a sterile vacuum. Well, that's not true either, because without the left-brainers, you don't live very long, you know, because penicillin doesn't exist, you know. Um, but the, the right-brain people, the poets, the sculptors, the chefs, the musicians, the actors, those who make whiskey, I mean, God bless you, those who uh, uh, roast coffee beans, I mean, coffee is keeping me awake right now. I mean, you make, you don't just create life uh, or the sustainability of life, you make life worth living. And so we have this situation in which you have an architect, a garden temple, and these gardeners that are to labor to increase uh, the usefulness and the beauty of God's good world. And I hope that this can begin to cultivate in us a new imagination and a new valuing of God's good world. Here's the thing. Part of our fallen condition means that we perceive, approach, and use creation errantly. At times, we deify creation and denigrate human beings. That is, we see creation or worship creation as Gaia, as the mother goddess, or as the universe, the universal hum that we can all tap into in moments of transcendence. 
But that creates a pancake out of God's creation, flattening it to make a false equality between human beings and all other creatures. So we deify nature, we denigrate human beings, and essentially say that human beings are basically just elevated plankton. They both have contributions, they're just different. That's just not part of the biblical understanding. There's a uniqueness in you that is not found in plankton, because plankton, as terrific as it is, is not fashioned in the image of God. But on the other hand, we can denigrate creation and deify human beings. We can create out of us uh, little gods with a manifest destiny as we go around exploiting and polluting God's good world, or permitting or excusing exploitation and pollution of God's good world. That's when we shift from stewards to looters. And there's something deeply satanic about that disposition. Our task as gardeners in God's earthen temple is neither to deify nor denigrate, but dignify. That's our task, to dignify God's good world. And we do that through perceiving, protecting, and predicting. Brief word about each. Perceiving creation. That means really seeing it, taking it in, having more of those wow moments. And that is hard because we live in a world of glowing, rectangular screens, pavement, and car exhaust. And the Genesis voice beckons us to return to the earth, beckons us to see the world without little filters so that we can wrestle around in the leaves and see the starlight and walk trails and stomp in puddles. That is Elohim sanctuary. By the way, I meet a lot of Christians that denigrate non-Christians who say, I don't need the church because all I need is nature. Nature is my church. And we denigrate them and say, yes, but what about the Bible? And we just go off on a tangent. Instead of really listening to them and what they're saying, I want to say they're half wrong, but they're half right. There is something about being exposed to God's natural world, which is very good for creatures. And they are encountering something of Elohim in their engagement with the natural world. It's always better as Christians, by the way, missiologically, when we don't assume that everybody else is a moron. Just saying. Okay, so that we perceive creation, that we find a new way to see, to connect more directly with God's earth and temple. Also, protect creation. Protect creation. That we oppose, oppose strongly, the denigration and exploitation and pollution of creation. Now, all of us in this room would say, of course, yes, we raise our hand. That sounds reasonable. But I think we need a, a, another dollop of self-suspicion when it comes to uh, the human capacity to prefer self-interests over the interests of others. Remember, be Augustinian in your anthropology. Martin Luther was once asked, you may know this, that if he knew that the Lord was coming today, the parousia was imminent, what would he do? Luther did not give a pious answer. He didn't say he would read the Bible. He didn't say he would go get somebody saved. He said instead that he would go and plant a tree in his garden. Why? Because he was going to go and do what creatures should go and do, take care of the world until Jesus comes again. Lastly, predict. Predict the future of creation. Friends, you will be raised from the dead into a new heavens and a new earth. And this is a happy bit of prophecy. Think about all of the things you now love. All of the sights, all of the people. 
Think about the tears you've shed over the people that you've lost. There is an age to come, which is now, even now, breaking into this age, which whispers to you, you will live on. And all of the things you love with a non-ambivalent love will live on in the world to come. So life will whisper little prophecies to you, little prophecies that say there is a new genesis. There is a new genesis, and it's on the horizon. Friends, Jesus died for the dirt. And Jesus died for his temple gardeners who were formed from the dirt. Jesus died to give a new genesis to the world, to give us a new garden. Mother Robert Capon says this, Why do we marry, take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, painting, chemistry, or cooking? Out of simple delight in the resident goodness of creation? Of course. But it's out of more than that, too. Half of Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the heavenly city that it longs to become. Every molecule is drenched in resurrection expectation. Brothers and sisters, love the creation. See within it your risen future, and go and plant a tree in the garden of hope. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.